Addiction and mental health, they go hand in hand, and they're issues that are talked about constantly now in provincial legislatures, federal, parliament, in mayoral elections like we're having in Toronto right now, and in the media. It's worse than it's ever been, it seems. That's the layman's look anyway. You walk the streets of Toronto, and you will see people suffering from addictions. You walk the streets of smaller towns that didn't used to deal with this sort of problem in the same way. And you see the issues that you used to just see in the big cities. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly, host of the Full Comment Podcast. And we're going to delve into the issue of addictions, safer supply, how we're handling this as a society and as a country. Before we get to our next guest, though, I do want to remind you that you can subscribe to Full Comment on Spotify, on Apple, on Google Podcasts, Amazon, any of the platforms that you listen to. Please hit subscribe and perhaps leave a review, share it on social media. Now, are we headed in the right direction? We are definitely going in a direction. We're going in a liberalization direction when it comes to dealing with hard drugs. We have fully embraced harm reduction. Now we are embracing in some areas safer supply. But is it the right move? Now, Dr. Sharon Koivu is an addictions physician who works at a hospital in London, Ontario, and has been studying this issue for some time. And she joins me now. Uh, Doctor, thanks for the time. Thank you for having me. It's a tough issue because you've got a lot of different aspects at play here. You've got moral aspects. People will have strong views on the morality of hard drugs or how we treat them. There are the medical issues. There are economic issues, um, such as do we have enough money to pay for um, the drugs for all the addicts in the country? How would you describe where what we're doing in terms of experiments, like what you've had out in London, what we're having in Vancouver, and what we may soon be having here in Toronto? I think that what you've said, calling it an experiment, is exactly what's happening, that we are having an experiment without really having the parameters that we normally use to both run an experiment and to monitor the effects or the harms of an experiment. Um, And I I think specifically that when you're referring to safe or safer supply, um, it is an experiment. It sounds good on paper. Obviously, we don't want people to be dying from toxic fentanyl. But I think that it's, we have to look at what happens once we introduce more drugs into a community. When we introduce more drugs into a community, we have found in the past that that actually increases the number of people that are going to be using them. That is essentially what happened during the opioid crisis that we sometimes talk about as the Purdue opioid crisis. More drugs were being prescribed, more drugs were being diverted and used by other people who weren't prescribed those drugs, and that led to our opioid crisis. Now we're kind of using that and calling it a treatment plan. I also want to say that when we first started using that in London, we did not have a toxic fentanyl problem. We were actually using safe supply specifically to help street level workers at risk, um, at risk of infection who were using a similar drug called hydromorph Contin and we were trying to protect them from street work by giving them Dilaudid. And I think that, that what we found 
that is positive is that if you give people healthcare and social services, you will get an improvement. If you offer comprehensive um, care for people's HIV, a place they can come in a non-judgmental way, you will get improvement. But what I don't feel we've shown is that we will continue that improvement for people who are using fentanyl, which is a very, very, very different drug. And more importantly, whatever we're doing anything, we have to be so careful that it's not causing harms to the people in the program and to people outside of the program and to the community. And that's where I feel we haven't done our due diligence in this program. You describe an awful lot of wraparound services, as they're mm-hmm. often called. Um, yes. By the politicians I talk to about this, you know, healthcare, um, perhaps housing, other, uh, other supports. My big issue with this, and I, I, I can be reluctantly convinced to go in the direction of harm reduction and safe supply if there are supports. But my problem with this is we keep adding in, okay, well, we'll do harm reduction, we'll do safe supply, we'll do this, but there's no supports uh, or not enough supports. There isn't treatment, enough treatment for people that would like it. There's not enough housing. Um, and so we are, uh, in in my view, and you could tell me if I'm way off base, it seems like we're saying, okay, we've got all these people on the streets. Let's give them what they uh, need in terms of drugs, but not what they need in terms of anything else. Actually, I think that's a really good point, And that's a really important way of, of describing it. Because harm reduction, when we really started embracing that, it was a pillar of drug strategy. And there were four pillars in that drug strategy. And those pillars are prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and enforcement. And I think that we've put, we recognized that compared to perhaps other countries, we weren't doing enough in harm reduction. And now we've put emphasis in harm reduction and taken away any, we've taken away supports for prevention and treatment and enforcement, and specifically prevention. We know from our all evidence and our data for tobacco, for example, that the most important way to prevent is to decrease access. And part of that is to also um, increase the cost. That's why to pay for cigarettes, most of the money is tax, and that's to make it less accessible, more expensive, less likely for youth to be using it. But now we have a program in which diversion is happening, making it very much more accessible and more accessible for anyone in the community to be using something that's extremely dangerous. And we're actually labeling it as safe. So it's danger. It's danger for addiction. It's danger for overdose. It's danger to the community. It's danger as a stepping stone to fentanyl. Um, it's danger potentially in injecting a, a, a pill that was designed to be swallowed and perhaps causing severe infections, as I'm seeing. We're calling something safe and having it an extremely inexpensive um, market. So we're now pr- having it out on the streets 
without can I interrupt for a yeah, second? Absolutely. Because you said mm-hmm. something at the beginning that I want you to define for us, because it relates to everything that you're talking about here. You said we have diversion now. What's diversion in this safer supply discussion? Diversion, which is sometimes talked to about as being kind of enhancing the illicit opioid market, is when you prescribe a pill or have a prescription that you give to some, someone with the intent that they take it, but the person that receives the prescription gets that filled and then sells their drug. Diversion can include being selling your drug, um, having it stolen from you, or having violence where you have to give it up because you're at risk of being hurt. And I believe all of those happen. So when we prescribe for safe supply, it is not witnessed. It is not uh, we are not witnessing all of the doses. Most places aren't wis- it, witnessing it's any. It's not like some of the pharmacies where people used to go and get a methadone. Right. When, when you start on methadone, you have to have it witnessed. When you start on Suboxone, which is a amazing opioid agonist therapy that is not getting nearly enough attention. When you start on these things, we witness them. We make sure you're t- tolerating them. We make sure that this is the dose that your body needs and that you can handle and that is safe for you. Then once you're stable, we look at giving you what's called take-home doses. That is not happening in the programs that are using Dilaudid or hydromorphone as a, me- as a way of dealing with people with an opioid addiction. So they're given an amount without an assessment as to whether that amount is safe for them to take, um, what they need. Um, and as people ask for higher doses, we are not checking to make sure that that dose is actually appropriate for them. And I'm seeing that working in the hospital. That's an extremely stressful situation for the physicians and healthcare staff, because we'll have people come in prescribed 20, sometimes even as many as 40 dilaudid um, 8 milligram pills in a day. So hydromorphone 8 milligrams in a day, they'll get 40 pills. And then we find that to keep them safe, not in withdrawal and not overly sedated, they take much less than that, 50%, 25 Often it's even less than that. So I've got one person who is prescribed 40 pills and is stable on equivalent of nine pills in a day. If we started them back on the 40 pills in a day um, right away and they took them or we change it into a method where you know, we're giving it by injection, we could actually be creating toxicity. So we know that those people are not tolerating that dose. We know that they're not checked to make sure they're tolerating that dose, which is further evidence that they're selling their dose. So this was raised last week. And uh, I, I know that you spoke to Adam Zivio for his piece in the National Post. I know that Global News in Vancouver went out on the streets and they were buying up pills. Uh, the supporters just still said, this isn't true. It doesn't happen. Uh, I, I mean, uh, there was clear video evidence within half an hour that Global News crew on camera had a, a fistful of pills. Um, so... 
is it widely known within the research community that this does happen? And is it just political activists saying trying to protect a, a, a program they don't want criticized saying it doesn't? I cannot imagine how people don't see that it is being diverted in so many ways. I lived within a kilometer of where um, the safer supply is prescribed in London. I actually moved there um, to be a, an urban physician living where people are. And in, in addition, I was moving there to support a supervised consumption site, which might've been built there. And I wanted to be able to be supporting it both as a physician hearing from people telling me they were buying diverted drugs and from people who were actually telling me they were selling diverted drugs. I had people who we had stable on methadone and stable on Suboxone that told me they were going to go on safe supply so that they could get the income associated with selling their drugs and that that was too much of an incentive for them to be able to, to stay on methadone or Suboxone. Wow. But living in the community, I also saw it. We developed encampments behind the pharmacy that had much of the diversion. I lived there. I would go and walk and talk to people. I was well-known and well, um, people weren't hiding from me. So when I'd go there, I'd talk to people. I would actually see people involved in selling their drugs. Um, I'd see people living in encampments and tell me that it's cheaper to get the Dilaudid near the source of the diversion, near the source where people get their, their prescription filled and sell it right away. It's cheaper there. So people were telling me that. Do I, did I bring a camera with me and record it? That wouldn't, you know, it, it didn't occur to me that that would be something that would be necessary in the future. And but it was, as I say, it was, I brought that to the attention of the group that was prescribing. Um, and I brought it to many attention at many levels when I was literally seeing it. Also, we were seeing things, the evidence of, of an increasing crime in the community that things like bicycles being stolen, people having, you know, their um, pipes broken to get the copper off of pipes. Those sorts of things are much more prevalent crime in that community against businesses that, you know, that didn't used to happen. I have family living in an area that social economically is the same, that was not experiencing the same issues that I was seeing in the neighborhood that's right near where, where this program was initiated. I also have certainly seen younger people. I have Lots of what they tell me are just anecdotes of younger people who are telling me that they're accessing diverted drugs. Well, they're saying they're getting drugs from safer supply. They don't use the word diverted. Are these uh, younger people, are they you know, high school kids that yes. that's how they're yeah. getting into drugs? Or yes. they were already on something and decided to move to this? I think that in high school, there are definitely people that will experiment with drugs. When my kids were in high school, it was not uncommon to see kids experimenting with ecstasy, um, mushrooms, even perhaps crystal meth. What's changed from what I can tell from speaking to parents who have kids in high school, from speaking to the young people that I'm seeing, 
is that now it is more accessible to be able to get diverted, so dilated, diverted drugs, opioids at the high school level. I don't think necessarily that means people in the program are going to the high schools. I think that, as I mentioned, I, I've known of people that have lived in encampments that actually moved there not to use the drugs, but to, to get them and then sell them else, else, elsewhere. Once things are diverted, you don't have a control of where they go. As I mentioned, as long as things are cheap and accessible, it does mean there's going to be an increase in the market. It's going to be an increase in the people that can access those pills. I cannot give a number of how many people in high school have access to, to diverted Dilaudid. I can say that I'm hearing that repeatedly. I'm seeing that in patients that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing that in stories of violence. And that really, really, really scares me because I think that now, you know, when you're experimenting in high school and you experiment with something like ecstasy, three years later, you can choose not to be using that. When you experiment at any time in your life with something that is this addictive, then your chances of becoming addicted to it are extremely high compared to some of the other recreational drugs. And that, as people start using something like hydromorphone, once you become addicted, that means your body becomes needing it. You, that becomes your normal. You need that. There's changes in your brain at a neurobiochemical level, and you need that drug to feel normal. Without it, you go into withdrawal. So you have to seek it but you're also seeking something we call euphoria, so the high. And if you try to seek a higher high, a better high, then you'll go to a stronger drug such as fentanyl. And fentanyl... And so people are stepping from one yes. to the other. Yes, that, that is what I'm seeing. So I say, you know, over and over again, when I'm seeing young people in the hospital, they tell me this as their story. This is their journey, is that they've started with hydromorphone, and those who've moved on, most started with it. In addition, as I mentioned, we didn't see fentanyl in the community be at, in 2016 when this, the program started. Now, I feel I agree with, with the article in the National Post that it's promoting fentanyl to come here. But either way, it's not stopping it. So if you think of an amount of fentanyl, that is going to be toxic and that it's going to harm people, that will not decrease by adding drugs to your community. So somebody dying from fentanyl, the numbers won't change. If anything, I do think it's attracting the fentanyl market and people will use and move up. But it doesn't do anything to address that there's fentanyl here. It won't. Adding a tr something to other people won't address that somebody could die from, from fentanyl. So it doesn't save lives in numbers. It might change who dies, but it's not going to save lives. It will just, to me, it reminds me of the old um, trolley um, ethical dilemma um, in reverse. So there's a common ethical dilemma where a trolley is going towards one person and you, sorry, a trolley is going towards many people and you can pull the switch 
and it could go to just one person and it's going to run over those people and cause their death. To me, I feel like what we're seeing is the trolley is heading to one person and we're pulling a switch and heading the trolley towards many. In the trolley, the trolley is fentanyl and we're putting more people on the track. It is possible that we can help that one person, but I would say that at the risk of harm to many, and I would say that there are better, safer ways to help that person. This isn't the only way we can help a person develop, um, leave their addiction or go into recovery, even if we're looking at meeting people where they are and trying to provide care where they are. I feel like we're forgetting about the other people that are being harmed, focusing on that person and also forgetting that there are other very evidence-based treatments and things that we need to be doing and enhancing. And enhancing, people shouldn't just have access to comprehensive health care if they're in the program. People in a methadone clinic or the suboxone, you know, rapid access addiction medical clinic do not have the same access to care that you get if you're in the safe supply program because the safe supply program is, is connected to the community health center and the others aren't. So we've, we've haven't set up anything like a fair kind of way of assessing it because we've, we've attached healthcare that we know is beneficial to people and we've haven't provided that for other people in other programs. All right. We need to take a quick break here, Dr. Koivu, but when we come back, I do want to ask you, where do we go? What are the steps that we can take? Because there is no doubt that there is an addictions problem. I just, uh, there are steps being taken. I'm just not sure they're working. Back in a moment. The issue of addictions and even opioids, there was an opioid problem before fentanyl, but everything has been made worse by fentanyl. Uh, and, you know, doctor, I cover all kinds of issues, um, in my career as a columnist. And, and I can tell you that all the major issues that Toronto's facing right now, I think whether we're talking about addictions, mental health, homelessness, crime, grime in the streets, there is a connection back to fentanyl, um, because it drives the crime. It drives the shootings. It is a valuable stash that people will kill to protect. Uh, all of these things, and, and, and fentanyl has just spread across the country over the last few years. You mentioned it wasn't there in 2016 when you started this safe supply program in London, um, but it's there now, and it is a scourge. But how do we how do we respond? You say that there are better evidence based treatment programs. Um, you know, when the government was asked about. Uh, the issue of safer supply last week, they said, we stand with the science. Um, that seems to be their, their answer to a lot of things. We stand with the science as if there's only one and, and they have it and it's in a nice little box over here and they're going to protect it. Um, science is constantly changing, evolving. People experiment, people look at results. Are we looking at results or are, are we wedded to a new religion? I think that's, a very good question. I think that, I think there's stories, there are anecdotal evidence of some benefit from, um, from safer supply. 
And those stories have been published and we're calling those stories evidence. Unfortunately, my stories I haven't published, so they're not evidence. I think that we have to look at what's happening and be aware the people in the community are seeing what's happening. And we have to look at whether it's really making the difference that we are hoping it will make. Is it actually decreasing overall overdose deaths? Is there a connection to increasing fentanyl? Is there a connection to people living in encampments to get diverted drugs? Are more people developing an addiction? Are younger people developing an addiction? I was recently told by a local politician that until those are there, that they're not changing, the federal government won't change their stand. And I guess I'd be saying those are exactly the things that you need to be following if you're going to be implementing this program. As a physician, I am legally responsible and, and have to. If I see harms, I'm legally required to, to report the harms that I'm seeing. In no other scenario have I been told that I also have to prove those harms. So I think we need to be having a much better surveillance for the harms that many of us believe are associated with the program. As I say, it's not normally up to me to prove that I'm, you know, that it's the version is a problem. We know that from lots and lots of evidence in all sorts of um, other data that diversion of opioids is a problem. It increases people that are taking it. It increases the risk of, of anyone becoming addicted. That's not new. We have to be looking at that data. We also have evidence of an increase in use in London. We have to be looking at that data. But I also think we're, we're focusing so much on safe supply at the expense of, of so many other programs, even at the expense of other harm reduction programs. I absolutely support the merit of a supervised injection site. It will help people who go and doesn't cause harm to someone else. So when I'm looking at whether harm reduction is effective, I want to make sure we're meeting people where they are. It has to be one strategy in the four pillars of drug strategy. It can't stand alone. It needs to be connected and interconnected and needs to be available. And we need to be making sure that anything we pick is not having unintended side effects and unintended harms. What, what are the other pillars in the four pillars? Okay, the pillars are prevention. The most important, probably, I mean, we, we like to say all of them are important. Prevention. The most important aspects in prevention are access and cost and health. We need to be looking at the social determinants of health that can cause people to seek out drugs. So we're looking at things like child abuse, trauma, um, poverty, homelessness, focusing on things that help people before they're going to be seeking a drug for addiction are extremely important. We need to be putting much prevention seems to have been forgotten and our need to be putting more emphasis on prevention is absolutely crucial. So prevention is one. Another is treatment. And we have significant evidence that um, when people can access treatment, that they can have improvements in their health. 
We have that with opioid agonist therapy, including methadone. We have a newer medication, Suboxone, which also comes in a once-a-month form called Sublocade. We have significant evidence that when people go on opioid agonist therapy in a clinical setting, that we can, they can have improvement in health outcomes. We have not done anything to compare those settings to people who are getting um, healthcare and wraparound services that aren't available at those settings. We also have had significant restrictions on, on um, with making sure we witness doses to prevent diversion. I think we've done a fairly good job of that, and we've lost sight of why we did that in the first place. Suboxone is a, a very much safer drug to be having, um, to be taking. It helps withdrawal and it prevent it, it decreases the risk of an overdose. Um, we need to be focusing on a treatment that will actually um, help people move on. Well, yeah, I, I want to ask you about treatment because one of my colleagues was interviewing someone in the public health field, and they asked about treatment and proactively offering addicts treatment at places like safe injection sites. And the response that she got was offering someone treatment would be judgmental on their lifestyle. It, and it flabbergasted it. It flabbergasted me. Um, is that a, a common view among some people in the public health community? Or is that, was that person an outlier? I, I don't know that I certainly have heard that view before. I don't know whether I could say it's common. I do know that people working, for example, in a supervised injection site want to make sure that they're not coming across as judgmental. And initially in London, we had a um, problem with um, an HIV outbreak and um, we were able to show that that was related to how people were people were injecting a long acting form of hydromorph cotton and um, that if they were reusing the filter or selling the filter or sharing the filter, then that was spreading um, HIV. And it was also contributing to a heart valve infection. We had to work with the supervised injection site to get them to feel comfortable teaching people how to use the equipment properly because of the sphere of interfering with their relationship, but we were able to do that. I also know that the supervised injection site here traditionally has worked with uh, other treatment facilities as being able to provide information for people to be able to get treatment. I think that that is something that's really important. So I, I have heard that view. I don't support it. I think that Absolutely. At a supervised injection site, you have to, part of harm reduction is to meet people at where they're at with stepwise approach to what their recovery is going to look like, knowing that for some people that's not going to be abstinence, but also providing the knowledge and the accessibility to ways that they can move on into recovery and abstinence. How the neurobiochemical effects of opioids will affect people's ab ability to function in society when they when they're, have a high level of use. Being able to get on something like methadone and suboxone will actually take away that euphoria 
and have neurochemical changes that will cause improvement. Staying on something like Dilaudid or hydromorphone will not allow neurochemical changes. That It basically stays in the addictive phase. So offering treatments that help you get out of being in an addictive phase are important. And they're important that harm reduction, in harm reduction, one of the pillars isn't working as a silo. It's working in collaboration with treatment, in collaboration with prevention. And we're all working together. If we're working in silos, we're not going to be able to address this crisis. So we've got prevention, we've got treatment, and then my apologies for interrupting you, but I had to ask that question. What are the other two pillars then? Okay. The other pillar is harm reduction. So that is a pillar. Um, And the other pillar that we refer to is enforcement. As in law enforcement? As in law enforcement, yes. So traditionally, and this is even work out of Vancouver, when we've looked at other places such as in in Switzerland, where they have been able to have a decrease in um, addiction, opioid use, and have been quite successful, they have used all four pillars effectively. And the fourth pillar is one that um, uh, is has less discussion, but it is about protecting even the people using against crime. So it's about recognizing that there are um, people selling, that we have to, you know, that those trafficking, those dealing, um, you know, making sure that there is protection of people from those people, making sure that this can't get to high school. So it shouldn't be up to me saying I'm seeing it in high school students it should be an enforcement issue that it's not getting there. And we need to be recognizing that. But we seem to be forgetting not only pillar four, but pillars one and two and focusing on pillar three. Uh, I think absolutely. I, I feel like we've, we, we were under funding or under recognizing the importance of pillar three harm reduction. And now we've overcompensated by putting so much of our attention on that pillar at the expense of really important services that offer the other pillars. And that's, I think, why it's not working. You can't, you know, a building's going to fall down if you only have one pillar. We know you need four. We're putting everything into one and hoping things work at the expense of services that are about treatment. As I say, our treatment you know, the Rapid Access Addiction Medical Clinic is not is finally open four days a week. It's not even open five. Um, the amount of availability is still low, and it's not connected to other healthcare programs in the way that the supervised injection, or sorry, and what the way that the safe supply is. So I feel absolutely we've we've focused on a pillar that we neglected, and now we've overcompensated by having it as our sole focus, we need to be stepping back, recognizing what we're doing, and looking at all four pillars and making sure that we're adequately funding, adequately promoting, and adequately using all four pillars to have an effective drug drug strategy. I'm glad to hear somebody who works in the field expressing this. Like I said to you earlier, I can be reluctantly convinced of of moving in harm reduction if other supports are there, but they don't appear to be. And when I point out things like after um, 
British Columbia decriminalized all our drugs at the end of January, um, I, I pointed out in a recent column that within less than two months, they were having record numbers double their previous high of uh, overdose calls on the downtown east side. And the response from supporters was, well, why do you want people to die? I don't want people to die. <laughs> this is supposed to be the point. But decriminalizing all the drugs without other guardrails in place, you know, two months in and things are getting dramatically worse, shouldn't we be measuring that? Shouldn't we be taking note, wondering, okay, are we missing a step here? I agree with you. My expertise, I will say, is not in enforcement. But I will say that from looking at the pillars and being involved in these for years, enforcement was an important pillar. Even things, you know, now people can carry their fentanyl. I don't know. I mean, I understand not wanting to criminalize people for their addiction. Absolutely. That is something I completely support. But I also know that previously, if you were walking and you were found with fentanyl, it was taken away. Now you have the opportunity to use it and have an overdose from the fentanyl that used to be taken away from you. So part of being able to get better includes, as mentioned, lack, lack of access. So the access has absolutely increased. And this, again, decreases prevention and increases access. Um, I do not, I I'm strongly don't feel people should be criminalized and jailed for their addiction. But we also then have to be looking at what does that mean when we um, move forward. And if, if what we're seeing with decriminalization is that there's more trafficking, that there's more use of the fentanyl, that more people are going to overdose with the fentanyl because they're very comfortable walking around with it, it's not taken away from them, we have to be evaluating that. We, you know, if we're going to make a change, whether it's decriminalization or adding safe supply, they need to be, there needs to be surveillance and there needs to be monitoring. And those who are saying we're seeing problems shouldn't be told, well, you haven't proved it. Really, the onus should be on the, the, those changes to prove they're safe, to prove the, to the community. Thalidomide is very effective at decreasing nausea in pregnancy. If all you're going to look at is the benefit, then thalidomide is an effective drug at decreasing um, nausea that can lead to you becoming dehydrated, which is a medical problem in pregnancy. We were able to connect it to the harms and determine that the harms made it something that we wouldn't accept, the benefits. And I mm -hmm. think we have to be doing the same with anything where we're looking at. It doesn't mean there are no benefits. We have to be looking at what the harms are. And the surveillance of the harms shouldn't just be up to people saying, these are concerning, I'm seeing them. We need to be doing accurate surveillance of the harms and then following up with what that looks like. Are we really getting an improvement in overdose deaths? If it's not, then maybe that's not the direction we should be taking. What I see is it's not, and we're doubling down on, on continuing the same path as opposed to reevaluating whether what we're doing is effective in the first place. You were recently uh, profiled in London Free Press because you're not used to being a person of controversy. Um, <laughs> what what was that like? You know, you you generally, uh, you know, I'm sure you've um, you know been in the media in the past. 
um, and, and probably at times with controversy, given that you, your support of safe injection sites, and, and that has been a controversial issue over the years, but having um, being part of a, a national debate um, was probably a bit of a shock to you, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I've tended to be somebody who's fairly private and fairly... Um, I don't seek attention. I don't like being the center of attention. But I also believe that it is my duty as a physician, as a person, that when I'm seeing something I, I believe is harmful, I have to speak up. I don't believe that I have a choice in that. I believe that I need to speak up and express concerns that I have about harm. And I've done that in other scenarios, in other situations. This one, and to be honest, when I first was speaking to the national, you know, the reporter at the National Post, I really wasn't expecting that. That was in February, I believe, that I, I was, well, I didn't ever speak with him. I just answered questions that he emailed. I really had no um, thought that I, my opinions would become controversial or at the center of a controversy. I've been stating them for a long time. I've been publicly stating them for a long time. Um, but now that other people are listening to them, they have become more contentious. Um, I believe that I'm a, have seen harm and I believe it's my moral responsibility to identify it. And I am willing to accept that there are going to be people who are going to be adamantly, adamantly disagree with, with what I'm seeing because they're not seeing it. If you're not in the hospital, seeing these people who are suffering from the infections, you can't tell me I'm not seeing it. And if you're not living in the community, you can't tell me you're not, you know, that, and not seeing those things. I'm seeing them and I'm reporting. Are, are we measuring them though? No. Are, are, no. are we studying this properly and no. measuring outcomes? No. No, no. And, and then, then that's a problem. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and um, I think there's, when I look at some place like Vancouver, for example, there's so much happening now that it's harder to prove links to anything. When I first started seeing infections in London, fentanyl wasn't here. And it was easy to say fentanyl wasn't the cause. It's harder for me to prove that now because fentanyl's here. And that so many people are using more than one thing. And I've had that pointed out to me that I can't prove it because people are now using multiple drugs or they started with Dilaudid, they've moved to fentanyl. By the time they get their infection from the Dilaudid, they are now using fentanyl. How do I prove it? It's going to take rigorous study to prove it, but I also don't know of any study that really proves that injecting a pharmaceutical, a pill designed to be swallowed is safe and in any type of rigorous manner that would normally be associated with scientific research. It's challenging, but I would say that the onus should be on those doing, sur you know, the surveillance should be on Health Canada. The surveillance should be, I've, which I've sent um, reports to Health Canada of people with, um, who have told me they're injecting Dilaudid and have developed spine infections. One had a paraplegia, meaning so they couldn't walk. Another one was paralyzed from the neck down from a an abscess in the higher up in the spine. I'm reporting those. Um, it's, we, it's, it's more challenging now than it was when I started. And yes, people are using multiple things, 
But to be able to say that injecting a pill is safe, I don't know of any study that actually shows that. And I think that's important before you start saying something is safe to inject. There really needs to be a study that shows that it's safe. It shouldn't be up to people in the community to say, okay, I can guarantee they're not using anything else or there can't be any other explanation for the infection. We haven't proved that it's safe to inject. We haven't proved if... if and, and, and that is a major issue yeah. that you're, you're yeah. facing is yeah. that people are taking these pills. Yes. And they're crushing them down yeah, and injecting yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. That they're because it gives gives them a better high. Yes, yes, it gives them, and and often that's essentially what they're used to do. And they're they're used, you know, their addiction. Well, most people start when they do start. They start swallowing pills, but to get a better, a bigger high, you it it you get a quicker euphoria, a quicker high through injection. So injection tends to be a step when people have developed an, an addiction. Things I'm glad I'm not fully aware of. <laughs> the program itself essentially encourages it, people to be injecting a pill. And, and I would say isn't really giving enough um, informed consent about dangers. If they don't believe those dangers exist, they're not, certainly not reporting it to people but I think that the danger of crushing a pill that's designed to swallow and injecting it is very real. And it, it's, you know, the thing, it's not the hydromorphone in the pill that's, that would be causing damage. It would be other things that are in the pill that would cause damage um, far, you know, in the bloodstream that can lead to an infection. Um, but a pill isn't designed to be put into your bloodstream. It's designed to be swallowed. And I think before we are giving a pill to inject, we should have studies that show it's safe. If statistically it's now hard in a place like Vancouver to show that there's an increase in infections from injecting a pill, it's because there's so many people who are injecting and it becomes much more complicated. I can say when it was more simple here, I felt very much like I could see a link. Do I have, have I been able to, prove that link. I think that the, the thought, as they say, the thought that, that um, injecting something designed for swallowing um, is likely to cause harm. We, we have never studied that it doesn't cause harm. Dr. Coyvey, thanks so much for the time and, uh, and your wisdom and experience. And um, I hope the discussion keeps going. Thank you very much for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. Listen on the app, your Alexa-enabled device. And of course, give us a, a rating or leave a review and tell your friends about this by sharing it on social media. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.